making big changes in life and overcoming the uh, resistance, procrastination that gets in the way of taking those necessary authentic steps in life. So in the West, uh, Buddhism uh, is, of course, deeply associated with meditation. Uh, when we think of Buddhism, probably the first image that pops into your mind is somebody that's sitting on top of a cushion, inwardly focused, uh, paying attention to the arising and passing of the breath or feelings or emotional states. And there's this great emphasis upon, as the emphasis is upon internal inquiry, there's also an association with Buddhism and acceptance because the emphasis upon in investigating one's internal experience means that for a while we have to put aside the tendency to fix, solve, address, put out issues in our life. And so to the degree that we emphasize meditation is to the degree that we at times make a willing a decision to put aside the need to do, to be involved, to take care of, to fix or address. Of course, in the West, this is also known by mindfulness. And mindfulness is essentially uh, grabs up into a neat package three of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. The three factors essentially revolve around the effort to stay internally focused the concentration, which allows us to settle the mind on things like the breath or sounds. And then mindfulness itself is the investigation of the uh, rising and passing of different internal states. So all of the three factors associated with med meditation are, of course, inwardly focused. We're becoming aware of what's going on internally. Now, if all you knew about Buddhism and meta or spiritual practice, the Dharma was that, you would have an association that essentially there's no need to make any changes in life, that all of spiritual practice was about accepting the conditions around you and that what your job would be would be to simply focus inward all the time and reduce the amount of stress and resistance that you're feeling. And it's not surprising that this makes mindfulness in this sort of secular guise where it's separated from all the other teachings, it makes it very popular with capitalist companies. In fact, I have been invited by companies large and small to go in there and the idea is I will give them some magical meditation thing that will make them happy worker bees, when, uh, not complaining that they're working stressful 14-hour days as coders and so forth. And the only time I ever agreed to do that was I went into Google because it just sounded too good. And <laughs> I went in and I said, meditation isn't going to fix the issues that you people are talking about, that you're bringing up. You, the problem here is that you don't have authentic, deep uh, interpersonal connections. You've got to stop this work-life imbalance and connect with each other and you've got to actually pursue authentic and they were like wow that was great thank you please don't ever come here again <laughs> so no they were actually fine about it they they were totally cool. I think they just wrote it off as, oh, well, he's the Dharma Punks guy. Of course he's going to say something like that. <laughs> we just brought you an experience. 
So, um, <laughs> so it's capital friendly because, listen, you know, it, it even now big insurance companies will pay for you to go to a mindfulness course because you can, they can throw a few hundred bucks, you can get trained in uh, internal inquiry, you can get turned how to, trained how to watch your breath and then how to observe the four foundations. And then you, you don't need to pay the big doctor bills or for the therapists, et cetera. And so uh, insurance loves it, big companies love it. They essentially, uh, if all this is about is meditation and internal investigation, then we don't upset the cart, we don't rock the boat, we don't do anything that makes the capitalist exploitation of our labor and the working conditions in our lives and the, the way uh, contemporary consumer culture has systematically deprived us of the village effect of connecting deeply with other people outside of work where we can have authentic exchange and disclosure of emotional content. So it's very convenient, but that's not what the Dharma or the Buddha's practice is. Let's look at the Buddha's life. What was the Buddha's life? Which And the Buddha's life is essentially a myth that encapsulates all of the key teachings. It's an object lesson. The Buddha, it said, was born into the warrior or the, somewhat like the military class, which in his day and age, 2,500 years ago in northern India, near Nepal, Kapilivatsu, was essentially, he was very, very wealthy, and he lived in a castle, and he didn't have uh, a lot of concerns about um, where food or shelter was going to come from. And he lived amidst sensual pleasures. It said that he was entertained, uh, for much of his life, he was kept away from seeing the troublesome aspects that are inherent to life, like the suffering that is endemic with old age, sickness, death. And so when the Buddha finally encountered the truth of life, where he went out of the limited uh, realm that he was raised and actually uh, mingled with the people. <laughs> he, uh, and he saw what is universal to life, which is, of course, that there's, in the first noble truth, not age, old age, sickness, death, separation from the love, not getting what we want, daily frustrations, pains in the body, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. That's part of the human package. And he realized that his life of creature comforts and being protected from investigating and learning how to turn towards the, the inherent pains that happen in existence as well as the pleasures was deeply inauthentic. And so did the Buddha decide, well, okay, I'm just going to meditate all day long and just stay here in my nice castle and keep what, the, what my dad you know, wants me to do was work at the family job as a, you know, a military you know, uh, a warrior. No, he didn't do that. <laughs> he didn't keep the job. He didn't keep the comforts. He didn't keep the inauthentic lifestyle. He left all of it, and he went into the jungle around uh, Kapilivatsu. Was it Varanasi? You should... Where, where he's from? No, where he first did the jungle. Yeah. Kapilivatsu, yeah. So... Um, 
he did that, and he met with Udaka Ramaputra, Akila Kalamas. He studied uh, Hindu and Jain practices, and then he spent six long years of deprivation and study so that he could forge an authentic path where he wasn't causing himself emotional suffering or despair. He was looking for something that deeply resonated with his core truths. He didn't believe what anybody else told him. He saw for himself what was resonant and true. And when he emerged after his enlightenment, uh, he presented what's called the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the threefold path. Guess what? There's five more folds to the path. So, what are those five? Well, two of them have to do with right understanding and, and essentially uh, setting one's thoughts towards uh, renunciation. So there's a, a wisdom part of the practice, which are two factors. But the other three factors are about having an authentic life in the way we uh, live, the way we make our our, we earn a living the way we interact with other people, the way we speak and communicate. These are the deeply social factors. And trying to have any kind of um, spiritual transformation without having a balanced path, where not only are we investigating our internal experience, but we're also being uh, rigorously uh, following what is a fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful life. If we don't do that, all the meditation in the world will not help. Because so much of our karmic actions that create emotional ease or emotional pain have to do with our social, what we do outside in the world. In fact, I would say that the dominant part of the uh, emotional wounds that happen that cause suffering the uh, come relationally, the way we interact with other people. The dominant experiences of pride and low self-esteem have, have to do with how we make our living, how we interact with other people in the world. So if we want to transform, if we want to quiet the mind and know true peace, if we want to feel that our lives have a deeper sense of purpose and meaning, then we can't limit it to the very nice and important 30 minutes or 40 minutes on the cushion every day or 20, whatever you're doing, but there has to be a sense of embracing, investigating, seeing where in our lives we're causing suffering for ourselves. And in this, the Buddha noted that there's three areas uh, in these three factors. One is in the way we communicate with each other. Right speech is not only refraining from harmful speech, but it is an insistence on authentic speech, which means we balance the need not to cause harm, but also to be authentic, truthful, to not rely on people-pleasing, getting over, being, saying the things that other people want to say. It is an insistence that we give language to our feelings, that we don't have a split between the felt self and the self that we present to others. That causes just as much suffering in life 
as any other misdemeanor or any other way we cause harm, when we do not authentically represent ourselves to other people, when we do not express what is being felt or experienced. And we can do that. There's a big difference between saying, I'm angry right now with you, and saying, you're a shithead, right? <laughs> the latter is harmful. The first is authentic and true. So there are always ways to express even the most difficult uh, emotions and feeling states that don't fit in with the expected. The second is right action. And right action is not just about not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, but it's also a challenge to renounce the intoxications of our lives, the way we self-numb. And I would propose that it's not just about the times that we drink or use drugs as a way to attempt to self-regulate painful emotions and painful memories that we don't trust other people to help us co-regulate. It goes deeper than that. It goes to the shopping, the binge eating, all the ways we turn away from feeling what the Buddha calls dukkha and cling to something that essentially represses and suppresses the way we feel. So once again, right action is about an authentic life that where we connect with something deep and we don't run away from it or hide it or conceal it. Right livelihood is work that doesn't harm or exploit. And the Buddha gave at first a list with things like don't engage in slave trade. And if any of you are doing that, I urge you to stop. <laughs> So if we don't accomplish anything else tonight but that, uh, good for you. And uh, also, uh, there's also not, in, not selling weapons, not dealing in poisons, bad idea. Um, and uh, so right livelihood is not just, though, about not causing direct harm. It's also about work that doesn't harm ourselves. If you're engaging in work that is demeaning, where people are not treating you with respect, if you are engaged in work which is belittling or creating emotional suffering because it's playing into uh, abuse patterns set from childhood or family systems or earlier life experiences, if you are engaging in work which chews up your work-life ratio, then that to me is not authentic livelihood. As the Buddha said in his uh, teachings to householders, the Sigalavada and elsewhere, it's just as important having a work-life balance that is allows us to connect with people that are what he calls Kalyanamita, true, authentic, spiritual friends. So there's these emphasis, and also the third noble truth that sets us on the path of liberation is Naroda, which is based around renouncing that which causes suffering in our life. Now, spiritual uh, renunciation, where we decide that work or a relationship or a family interaction or some situation that we have in our lives is causing, is not uh, doing anything other than causing suffering. It has to be addressed. It is obviously scary. It is obviously easier to say than do sometimes to 
quit a job that is um, not fulfilling. It's easy to say that if we're in a, uh, a housing experience or a roommate experience or if we have a friendship that is abusive or if we have some relationship in our life that is essentially we've tried to be to communicate clearly our needs and it's not working and it's time to take a big step to embrace an authentic change in life uh, it's very easy to say that we need to take those steps but yet many of us can stay stuck in deeply unfulfilling uh, work that it, that doesn't activate any sense of of feeling like one is uh, having any positive effect on the world. And we know in neuroscience that the right anterior cingulate cortex is the hub of a social circuit that rewards us when our work benefits others and punish us when we feel that our work is not benefiting any other being. And that part of the brain needs to see, in person needs to see, that what we're doing is of benefit for other beings. There's uh, these large meta data studies of all the baseline happiness studies that started during positive psychology in the 1980s and 90s with Martin Seligman. And when they crunched the numbers, they found that the two factors in our control that lead to lasting happiness were, one, having close friends that we could emotionally co-regulate with. That means express how you're feeling without worrying what they think. Tell the truth about what you're experiencing. Disclose your emotional states. And two, was work that benefits others. Now, Abraham Maslow, the great existential psychologist, said that in addition to that, we also need to have what's called um, authentic actualization. Beyond just being of benefit to others, most of us 20th century denizens also need to feel that we can be spontaneous, that we can be creative, that we can think outside of the box in our jobs and in our work, that we're not stuck to mind-numbing routines, that we can problem-solve, that we can have a sense of belonging to an endeavor that's benefiting others. Those are what Maslow called the higher levels of human actualization, the feeling of spontaneity, creativity, thinking outside of the box. Human beings need that to feel that there's a sense of purpose and meaning to their lives. And yet, and yet most of us, when faced with the conundrum, safe job, makes money, pays the rent, and not fulfilled, <laughs> unhappy, not seeing much meaning in my life, need to do something that feels more authentic, many of us will overweigh the importance of security at the expense of actualization and fulfillment. Many of us will basically say, well, I'd like to do something, I'd like to do uh, volunteer work that helps other people. I'd like to do creative work that expresses how I feel. I'd like to do something that where I can be spontaneous and dance or take off time and connect with other people. I'd like to have 
that kind of meaning in my life, but hey, that doesn't pay the bills, so sorry, it has to go. Why is it that we give such short shrift to, uh, which gives me an opportunity to say short shrift, which is something that you read, but you actually never say in your life. Um, why is it that we give such weight to the secure, paying the bills, paying the rent, looking good to our families so that when we, we get together on Thanksgiving, people can say, how's the job? Anxiously hoping that you still have it. And you can say, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Why is it? that we give such neural uh, emphasis? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, all of us have in our brains what's known as negativity bias. We give five times the amount of weight to negative experiences as we give to positive experiences. We weigh threats far more heavily than we weigh opportunities. And so anything associated with a threat, we will give five times the amount of attention and neural essentially will be much more powerful when it comes to our emotional decisions. And many of us, of course, in early life, whenever we try to be independent, explore, think outside of the box, do something that was felt fulfilling to ourselves, but didn't match our family system's priorities, or didn't match the way our families, our parents, our teachers thought, we were very often shamed punished, told off that we were wrong, told that we were being selfish. And as children, our job is to maintain connections no matter what. So very early in life, even though our parents can simply believe that they're trying to protect us and make us survive in the world by focusing our attention on schoolwork or on fitting in or on the way we present ourselves, the way we look, there can be an overemphasis on rewarding, essentially, conformity and a kind of unconscious but clear tendency to punish any kind of thinking or behavior that doesn't conform, that doesn't often make financial sense, that doesn't look good on paper, that sometimes may not spell out to be a career. So this kind of association between taking risks, rejecting the well-beaten path, the same thing that the Buddha did, can be associated with punishment, shame, emotional disconnection. Children, according to Bowlby, need a secure base to explore the world. Bowlby was the great attachment psychologist. And he noted that children that feel securely connected to their caregivers are the ones that naturally take risks, explore, play, engage, uh, have fun, literally play. And Winnicott noted that the children that do not feel deeply securely connected are the ones that cling close to their parents and do exactly what their parents do and imitate adults. So to a certain degree, not only in childhood, but the times in our life where we went off on our own and did something that was authentic and true can also be associated with feelings of isolation and disconnection. And once again, that can create this neural association between taking risks is not good. It, is, it creates a greater sense of threat, a greater sense of danger, than it does. Some people I've worked with in counseling, even 
saying to their boss, look, my work-life ratio is, is not leaving me enough time to embrace my life, to do some of the things I love. I'd like to explore with you um, how we can change the responsibilities so that I can still work here but also have endeavors in my life that are meaningful. Sometimes even that conversation can feel like death itself because we project early dramas with our parents where we simply asked for something that we knew was probably going to be negated or was going to lead to some form of subtle abandonment. And so we can bring this dread into the equation and feel that we're entirely dropping the ball if we ask for something for ourselves. So sometimes just the authentic doesn't mean we have to quit, but it does mean we have to represent our needs. And we have to be willing to explore ways to not abandon what is true and fulfilling in our lives. So uh, the less secure our childhood, certainly the greater the likelihood that we will prioritize security at the expense of fulfillment. Um, and I'd like to emphasize that the decision, which seems to be a logical decision, whether to stay in a certain situation or leave, whether to uh, take risks in one's life that are worthwhile or to stay in routines, it can seem like this is a cognitive choice that we're making. But in fact, it's my proposition from working with people for 12 years now that in fact, this choice is actually almost invariably emotional, not logical. That emotionally we feel that taking a step for ourselves, being willing to confront or state our needs, being willing to set boundaries, being willing at times to let go of things that are secure to embrace what, is, um, what feels truly resonant in our hearts, um, this we can project all of the most negative experiences of our lives and assume that the same thing that happened to us in childhood when we asked where we wanted something for ourselves will happen to us in adult life. So in essence, we bring our childhood into our adult experience. There's this inner child in us, and it really deeply believes that the moment we do something for ourselves, whether it's work less or quit a job, or leave a situation where our needs are not being met, that we will die. Because that's what that child felt like whenever in the past it asked for something for itself. So in order to embrace the authentic, we have to have ways to speak to the emotional mind. It's not a logical game. It's not like we can wait for the right perfect moment where we'll have enough money to quit our jobs. That never comes along. Because it's not about money. It's not about that it's about the fact that we still deep inside feel like children that will be punished, shamed, rejected, isolated, abandoned if we do for some do something for ourselves. I'm speaking from personal experience, by the way. I had to when I became a Buddhist teacher, I walked away from a well paying job in the advertising industry. I was a copywriter, art director. I'd been in there for much of my life. And after nine eleven it was clear that for me it was difficult to reconcile what I saw on that day uh, with my Buddhist practice and my 
desire to do something that was of benefit for other people. I just couldn't see how advertising soap or, or was was in any way benefiting people's life. Maybe it made them cleaner, but all soaps are the same. There's real no difference between them, by the way. So everything that happens in advertising is essentially a sham. I should know. I sat in those meetings. So... What we're aiming for is emotional teachings that will bring, make the inner child feel more capable of taking a risk. That part of us that assumes, catastrophizes, procrastinates, expects that we'll wind up homeless and on the street. So there's two ways we can do this. One, the Buddha had ten day, that had ten reflections, and two of those reflections are... Um, sila nusati, which is reflections on all of the skills that you've developed. And by reflections, it's not a lot of thinking. It's by holding in your mind an image of all the tools, skills that you've developed that separate you from who you were as a child that you now can rely on. Two is... Uh, Devanusati, it's a recollection of all the people in your life now as an adult that care about you, that won't abandon you if you do something authentic, that won't shame you, that won't judge you, that if you quit your job will not think you're somehow dropping the ball or being self-indulgent. Recollections of the people who want you to be happy. If you can't think of somebody, I want you to be happy. I'm not saying you want to carry this image in your mind, but... If no one else comes up, know that I want you to be happy. There's nothing that makes me happier when people come into my counseling sessions and say, I finally quit the job. And it's like, yay, if I drank champagne, we pop champagne. It makes me feel so affirmed. So I guess other spiritual counselors would feel affirmed if people came in and said, I finally got a job. I'm just not that guy. <laughs> so we need to show, not tell the mind that it's not a, the left hemisphere is the thinking, logical, rush, you know, the part that uses language. It won't get to the emotional inner child, which has fear and emotionally deeply embedded beliefs that taking re risks leads to rejection and abandonment. So we need to show the child, not tell the child. So show the child the people in your life that care and the skills that you have. And then also, finally, the last part of the equation before we meditate is maranasati. The Buddha said that in many places, spiritual urgency, the feeling of compulsion to do something that is spiritually right at the expense of one's you know, security, comes, is, happens when we remind ourselves of our death, of our mortality. I have been a, a visiting teacher at a place called Zencare for the last 10 years where I train hospice workers as a guest, and I've done hospice work in my life. And I can guarantee you that when you go and see someone who's 10 years younger than you dying of metastatic cancer or MS, that any fear of making any change in your life goes away <laughs> completely. Because nobody, when they're close to death or seeing death, prioritizes playing it safe. Nobody in their 80s who was reflecting on their life ever looked back on their life and said, thank God I played it safe. 
that I didn't take risks, that I stayed at that job that paid my bills where I didn't have, I didn't feel fulfilled. Thank God I did that. That's never been said. Never happened. Never will happen. But what does happen is people, when they are faced with, uh, uh, there was one wonderful story I read of a guy who was accidentally given a year to live, and this is a spiritual practice even called a year, a year to live, where it helps people um, address imbalances in their life. But this guy was given a year to live diagnosis of a brain tumor. He immediately quit his job. He connected with people that he had, uh, through petty arguments and disagreements, had abandoned or had abandoned him. He, re he healed all of those ruptures. He pursued his art. He actually wrote a book. You know, he did everything that he wanted to do. He was never happier in his life. Then, the worst thing he said that ever happened to him happened. The hospital called him, called him and told him he was going to live. And he said that very day, he got into a meaningless argument with a cab driver about the best way to get uptown. It's when we don't have a conception of our own mortality, our own fragility, the fact that any moment we, are not, we could not be here, that we're willing to trade our authentic truths, the things that make resonate deeply. But when we do have a, a deep awareness of death is when we begin to prioritize what is authentic. There's a Noah's father. Um, Stephen Levine wrote a book called A Year to Live where people practice having that diagnosis. And when they do that path, they make real changes in their life that are authentic. And they never suffer for it. They're never winding up homeless on the streets. They're never winding up suddenly hit with that, you know, unsolvable health care bill that they can't pay. It doesn't happen. I don't know why, but all of the fears that we tell ourselves will happen never do. I've worked with a lot of people who've done the year to live life. So in our practice tonight, we're going to spend some time visualizing skills and connection. We're going to also spend some time with the Marana Sati practice and Buddhism that involves the five daily recollections of I am of the nature to become sick, grow old, die, to be separated from all the I love, and all I will be left with is the choices I've made. In other words, the integrity of our choices are all that will matter uh, when we face our mortality. So, find a comfortable seated position. <laughs> So putting aside everything I've just said and bring your awareness to what's happening right now, we'll take three breaths to start our practice together. It's just something that I like to do in my practice. So take a full in-breath through the nose, and if you'd like, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears and hold your shoulders up for an extended in-breath. And then when you release the breath through your mouth, drop the shoulders, and if you feel... It's appropriate for you, gently pull the shoulders back to open up your chest, create a nice place to receive the breath, and then for the second in-breath, 
Full in-breath through the nose. Tuck in the belly as tight as you can. The belly is a space that we hold a lot of fear. And so we want to relax that residual fear. And then breathe out. Relax, soften the belly. Nice, round, relaxed belly. And for the third in-breath, squinching the toes, the buttocks, the fists, the muscles of the face, clenching the jaw, squeezing the eyes, ugly pinched face you wish nobody would ever see, and then relax, drop the jaw, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, and let's take a moment to... uh, Encourage the eyes to settle behind the eyelids so that when the eyes are settled, it makes it easier for the mind to settle. When the eyes are bouncing about like they're looking for something, it tends to keep the mind a little bit jumpy. So see if you can encourage the mind to settle. So take a moment to observe... uh, the sensations of the body in general, and if there's anything that you can address immediately to make yourself comfortable, let's do that. Um, Sometimes people will find that they're holding their hands in unrealistic positions. Always humors me to look at those images of people meditating. Uh, They're always showing people with their hands in these ridiculous mudras. Don't do that. Just relax your hands. And if your clothes are too tight, relax, pull them out, make everything comfortable. So in the rest of the meditation, if you do have to move, if suddenly you're feeling uncomfortable, the request is to first figure out a way to move that doesn't create any sound that will distract the people sitting next to you, and then two move in such a way that's so slowly that it won't create any disruption. So you don't have to sit in a position that's causing pain, but just switch with a lot of uh, care for the experience of others sitting around you. So for the first part of meditation, we'll work with a concentration practice, and that means simply holding something in the foreground of your attention. You don't have to push anything away. So if your mind has a lot of thoughts in the background or images popping, just allow them to be there, but keep in the foreground of your awareness, like the spotlight on the stage, a ongoing sensation or very simple repetitive phrase. So the ongoing sensation, for example, could be the feeling of your body breathing. And one simple practice is find the area where you feel the inhalation and exhalation. And then think one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, three on the in-breath, four on the out. And when you reach five, start counting back down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So we're counting from one to five and back down with two and four always on the out-breath. Try to make those out-breaths as long and smooth as possible if you want to relax the mind. If you want to bring energy into the mind, try to make the one, three, and five in-breaths really 
completes full and hold them for a little while. And before we go into silence for a while, if you want to work with something other than the breath, that's fine. <coughs> you can simply listen to the sounds flowing into the room and the lights flickering behind closed eyelids and feel the sensations of the body swaying. You can hold what the Buddha called a nimitta, a very simple image in the mind, a candle flickering in darkness, a peaceful setting that doesn't change that you know very well, a very simple shape filled with a color. Or finally, we could do a loving-kindness practice, hold an image of yourself, and just simply think, I love you, keep going, and then change that image with someone that you care deeply about and repeat the same phrase, I love you, keep going.
So at this point, you can just allow the concentration object that you've been holding in your awareness to no longer be in the center or the spotlight of the mind's attention. Bring to mind some risk or change or opportunity, something in your life you wanted to pursue, but either due to procrastination, worry, concern, self-doubt, you haven't pursued. Something could be creative or a conversation you haven't had. Something where you've refrained from expressing or pursuing what you know is of interest or of deep abiding resonance to your heart. And while you hold that image in your mind, see if you can connect with the fear, the concern that we could refer to as that part of ourselves that's frightened, that worries that if we take that step, if we have that conversation, if we pursue that goal that we will somehow be let down, we won't be good enough, other people won't like us or think that we're being indulgent. See if you can feel that part of you that is frightened of taking risks or pursuing that which is in some way deeply connected to your heart yet makes little sense to your rational self-reliance paying the bill mindset. So when you feel that fear, see if you can then hold it. It's probably somewhere in the stomach or the throat. Or you might just feel it as a small sense in the back of the mind in some way if it's possible. And just now, what we want to do is show that part of ourselves that we are not without resources, that it's not like it was in the past, that there are skills and people that care about us. So visualize a skill that you've developed on your own or with help. Something that shows you that you can grow, that you can develop, that you can succeed in taking risks and expand your life. Just show the mind an image of yourself, whether it's playing an instrument or writing or having something published or something that you've done helping others, some skill
that creates not only a sense of esteem, but also shows you that you can grow, achieve, develop. Reminding that inner child that maybe it was convinced before you learned that skill that you wouldn't be capable of developing, that you wouldn't be capable of what is now routine for you. Bring to mind someone, a friend, who wants you to be happy, who doesn't care about how responsible you are as an adult in terms of paying bills and financial security, who wants you to be happy. That's what they care about. And knowing that this person will be there, connected to you. Feeling that you will not be abandoned if you take risks in your life, if you embrace your life. If you have a community that you're connected with, either a Buddhist community, a 12-step community, another community, friends who went to the same school, visualize that as support and connectedness. Unlike our early experiences, if we take risks, we will not be dropped by the world. You will not fall through the cracks. And finally, let's inform the child of perhaps the most urgent consideration, our own fragility, bringing with the child attention to your breath, feeling your body breathing, and noting that one day this body will breathe no more. One day this body will stop breathing. And that this time is uncertain. For many it comes far earlier than they ever suspected. Bringing your attention to your hearing
and then remind yourself that one day it will be difficult to hear, that all the sounds that you can hear so crisply now will blur and fade, and one day your connection with the world through sound will grow distant. Bring your attention to images flickering in your mind and then see if you can imagine them blurred and faded, reminding the child that one day all of the sights that I cherish will become blurred and indistinguishable and my connection to the world through sight will begin to dissipate. Knowing that I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die, to be separated from all that I love, and that all I will be left with at the end is the integrity of my actions. What could I embrace today that I've put aside that would make me feel more comfortable with all this reflection on the fragility and impermanence of life. What would make me feel authentic? What would give me a sense of having embraced my life? If nothing comes to mind, ask yourself, what is the actions I've done in the last five years that have given me the greatest sense of pride and feeling of having grown? And knowing the true fragility of life, its fleetingness, can I integrate that into this wisdom, the wisdom of death. So we're about to end the meditation before we do that it's always a good idea to reflect on the virtue of any practice if you meditate not only does it have countless neural benefits and 
physiological health benefits, which have long been established by the American Health Association and the Mayo Clinic. But when you have a meditation practice, you're much less likely to harm mm. others or get into needless conflicts. You have greater control of fight, flight, or freeze reactions. So in general, our practice is not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And when we're practicing, we're not using up the world's resources. Your practice comes at no expense to any other being, so your practice is blameless. And just always reflect on that at the end of your meditation, rather than in any way judge or criticize your practice. When you hear the sound of the bowl, first look at the rug in front of you. Don't just look around the room. If you do, sight is a very dominant sense. And it will push awareness of all the feelings and body states and emotions that you've connected with into the background. So just first integrate sight and color into your awareness and maintaining a nice balance between how you feel and what you see. Then look around the room.